everybody, and welcome to the return of Tales from Billy, my podcast where I talk with people who work in film, video production, and broadcasting about a wide range of topics from their day jobs to side projects to hobbies and just things you do for fun in your off time. Today, I have with me Mr. Jeffrey Chance out of New York. How are you doing, Jeffrey? I'm doing very well, Billy. I'm so glad to be here. So... Just before we began this podcast, Jeffrey and I were talking about the affordability of filmmaking in general, but especially color correction and color grading tools and monitors and just a general trend toward people not having to focus on purchasing equipment and justifying that cost and more into expressing their creativity. Uh, would you like to talk a bit about that on, on the podcast? Yeah, I'll be very happy to talk about it. First and foremost... I am so happy as a, you know, black man who grew up in an area where, you know, things were a little harder to get, that things are becoming more affordable, that things are becoming more accessible. It's less about the financial gatekeeping as much as it's about skill development now, creativity, and getting that technical talent. And I think it's really important that, you know, as things become cheaper, we're having the opportunity for more diverse voices and more diverse makers to shine. I think above all, I think above all that we're going to see a consequence of it, you know, as a colorist in New York, um, you know, the rate fluctuates so, so much. Um, you'll, you'll still get those high rates, but you'll have some clients who are like, oh no, well, my editor can or just color it, or, you know, my DP can just put a lot on it. And, yeah, that's a consequence, but I don't think that consequence outweighs the benefit of diverse voices, ever. I will always champion more diverse voices and more diverse makers over a, over a small consequence like that. And on a, a topic about, you know, having more and more diverse voices and the general consequence about that do you have uh any particular projects that you yourself are working on you know you being a black man who works as a colorist is not exactly common it's becoming more common uh especially in the mid-tier to you know indie range but in in you know some higher end uh color houses it's still uncommon and you've you've been in and out of a, a lot of circles in in the northeast i'm wondering what what your perspective is yeah, well, I, I will say that it's still near non-existent. Like, if I see another person of color, if I see another black person, uh, when I'm, like, at a post house, it's it's rare. It's so, 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 so rare. Um, yeah, we're, be, we're becoming more common with indie, in indie circles, but the issue is that when post, high, post houses hire people of color one they're looking at it for diversity score and two a lot of the time is they keep us in the back so you'll see a lot of poc color assistants a lot of poc runners you'll see a lot of poc kind of post assistants but very very few very few especially black junior colorists and senior colorists in post houses and I'm hoping that's something that's going to change, but right now it's not there just yet. Um, 
I think it goes back to it's a structural issue um, where it's about kind of there's so many lower income individuals, lower income students, lower income um, image makers for uh, just a broader term that would love to find work in these venues, but they don't have the resources available to them that otherwise, you know, wealthier, uh, generational wealthier communities can. And those ways, nine times out of tens, are internships. There's a huge line between internships and work in a post house. So the more internships we can foster in lower income communities, lower income schools, lower income after school programs, the more we'll find in post facilities. I 100% believe that. Um, another interesting thing on that, you know, this this line of topic that I want to bring up too is the networking aspect. I think part of it too is just people tend to hire from the circles they run in and the people that they're familiar with or rather people yep. who remind them of themselves. And so I, I just think a lot of it is that cultural divide and the circles that people socialize in. Yeah, yeah, no, I 100% agree. This is an industry that lives and dies by who you know and recommendations. And I think that's a good and bad thing. Um, you know, I'm very blessed to, uh, like, so much of the work I get is through word of mouth. Um, and that's kind of how it works in the industry. But it becomes a hard time when you're in a state where, you know, the arts aren't uplifted and, you know, there isn't a arts community. So that's where it becomes such a hard thing for people to break into this type of work. Yeah. Like if you're like if you're in rural Kentucky and you're interested in being a uh, like VFX artist or a um, colorist, it becomes really, really hard and really difficult. Um, the upside to that, though is the beautiful thing called Facebook. <laughs> there are so many, so, so, so many Facebook communities and so many social media communities that allow us to connect without even being 50 miles of 50, 100, 1,000 miles between each other. I mean, I, I owe my whole career so far basically to Facebook networking. Even though I get so frustrated with it and I, I keep saying I want to leave it, if I did, I, I the work would dry up. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I think uh, personal experience is I met during the height of George Floyd and, um, yeah, during the height of George Floyd, myself and other um, black uh, colorists and people in the post industry were really frustrated and really angry um you know i've i've had experiences you know walking into i'm i'm a black guy with dreadlocks uh, i don't traditionally fit <laughs> how a colorist looks um but i've had experiences you know walking into post houses and you know the secretary or the person at the desk thinking i didn't belong there and it was the first experience during George Floyd where myself, um, the, Nigel Tayando, um, Twain Richardson, and so many black colorists, Patrice, Bo Patrice Bowman over at Bowman LLC, um, came together and said, no, we're here. And it was a beautiful moment where I realized I wasn't alone. 
you know, that, you know, I have a whole community, a whole group of people to talk to who shared this experience, who shared, like, the idea of, like, not being what's traditionally the norm or what traditionally looks like the norm in terms of um, color work, be it race, be it um, neuro, like, if you're neurodivergent or neurotypical, be it, and, like, be, there's so many things. And it was just great to have a community that found each other through social media. It was amazing. One of the interesting things, so for a lot of people who are, may listen to this and don't know, I grew up and live in rural-ish Alabama. It's, it's an urbanized area, but compared to most of the country, it's pretty rural. Um, I know a lot of black creatives who work in video down here. And unfortunately for a lot of them, the only way they can find work is to do video for churches. Anything in narrative or production is a closed off field for them. Um, I work for, you know, my, my direct supervisor at, you know, my day job. He is a black man who's been doing this, you know, since technically since the seventies when he was working at TV stations. And then he opened his own company and has been doing that since I think the early to mid eighties. And just hearing him talk about some of the hardships and some of the the assumptions people made and then hearing, you know, all of my friends who are stuck working at churches talk about how they can't get anything done. It's, it's freaking crazy. Yeah. It's kind of, and that's kind of the big issue plaguing us where it's now, since things are a little bit more accessible, it's about, okay, well, we have access to these things. How do we move up? How do we move up? And that's the saddest part where, you know, and I felt that too sometimes working where you know, I'd be hired and, you know, I would go to these, uh, I would, you know, go to work, see my coworkers, um, you know, start, uh, like, uh, I'd get hired as a DIT a lot. Um, and sometimes uh, in, in New York, it gets a little tricky because the DIT is also doing the work of a dailies tech. Depends. I did a lot of agency work. Um and it would be about, okay, well, I'm here. I'm one of the few people of color. Um, I've been here for a while. I've, you know, I've uh, shown my chops. Why can't I move up? Why am I only getting these positions offered to me when I'm doing the job of, you know, a colorist and more? And it gets, it gets frustrating and it gets... You get angry, but you can't be angry in these places because, you know, as a black person, as a person of color, uh, as someone with, you know, my type of look, you know, if I get angry, it's feeding into so many stereotypes. It's feeding into so many um, fears that, you know, some people unconsciously have. So we always, and I'm sure, I'm sure your supervisor would share uh, more stories like it where we always, always, always in a professional way, we have to mind our tone, mind our, how, and mind how others perceive us much more than I ever, <laughs> ever could put into words. Yeah, the, the guy that I work for, he, um, his name is Mick Kirkland. He's probably one of the most patient people I've ever met. Uh, even to the point where, like, dealing with me, he's probably way more patient than he should be. <laughs> you know, um... But yeah, no, I, I, I think I, I understand what you're talking about just from an outsider perspective, seeing that mindfulness and having to be very careful with how you speak, where personally I tend to speak way more freely than I think he, he allows himself to. Yeah. 
yeah 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 it's it's one of those it's one of those things um and it's it's interesting because like right now (laughs) i'm working on i'm working on a feature film called long island gus and it's very 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 italian it's you know it takes place in long island it's about um an italian man named gus uh and (laughs) it's it's very much kind of culturally what i what what i've seen and what i've heard and what (laughs) long island kind of has meant to me in so many ways and it's just interesting seeing how other cultures kind of interpret their own um and seeing how as I work, as I kind of navigate these spaces and navigate like different communities, how it all functions. It's every project, at least to me, bring you learn something from and brings a different dynamic. And this one's is really fun and really insightful in terms of different communities. What would you say has been the most significant part of your career to this point? Like what what's the moment that made you realize that these barriers you keep running into are worth pushing against oh god that's hard i'm sorry if that's if that's too hard or too personal of a question we can move on but Um, it's the kind of insight that i I personally would like to hear if if you're willing yeah um i think for me it wasn't as much a i think for me I, i struggle a lot with um imposter syndrome and you know i I teach workshops at the Maryland Institute College of Art. And it's always one of those things where I'm teaching and I'm like, oh my God, I'm such a big ass fraud. Oh my God, am I teaching them the right thing? I don't deserve to be teaching. I'm not good enough to teach. And, you know, the repeating pattern. Um, And then when a few years ago, one of the students said, Jeffrey, I've learned so much. I've learned so much from you in the short amount of time than I ever thought was possible. And for me, that was like a big moment. That was like a really, really big moment. And I think for me, that that was kind of the moment where I was like, all right, so this is worth doing. This It is it is worth it being a colorist. It is work, worth it kind of being othered in these communities. It's worth it to keep going. Project-wise, though, um, (laughs) uh, it's one of those things where I was watching, and this happens with, I don't think it's one project per se, but yeah, I'm talking from so many places as I kind of figure it out in my head. I would say the first project that I worked on as, you know, with my colorist hat on, was monumental to me. Um, the first one was, I remember I was a PA for it. I'll never forget. Um, I was a PA. It was a reel of an actor. Um, I don't know if she's listening, but (laughs) Olivia, you're the best. Um, I was hired to be a PA. Um, the set, so much happened during the set, kind of lights went out, uh, huge day changes. Things were late. So they, they were looking for colors to make shots look way more consistent. Um, time of day-wise, tonally, 
uh, whole nine yards. And I've colored before that. Um, I, I did a, uh, was a runner, a whole nine yards, but I was never the colorist for a project. And, you know, I, I, they gave me the job. Um, my fingers were sweating. My nodes were labeled. I was super anxious, and it got done. And I remember kind of looking at the Rec 709 and then looking at the grade, looking at at how much more consistent everything was. And I remember going, holy shit, I did that. And I, I think for me, that was that was like a pivotal moment. And then, of course, when the client came in and really enjoyed it, you know. And I, I think that that's what I like the most, where even if a project's difficult, even if a project's awful, even if, you know, I, I don't feel the client is taking things in the right direction, or if I feel like the project isn't, you know, the best demonstration of my ability, there's always that feeling at the end, after looking at it on a screen with, you know, the, might be, you might be viewing it alone, you might be viewing it with a producer, you might be viewing it way down the line, like on a TV with friends, and it just comes on. And it's like, holy shit, that looks good. And, you know, the client, the client's feeling uh, the way the grade's supposed to make them feel. And, you know, the DP and you kind of look at each other and you nod. And that's when you know this is worth it. This moment, that's what it's for. And also the paycheck. But this moment. <laughs> so, I, go, go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I just, I, I know I talk a lot, but um, as I navigated in my head, one of the ones that came up a lot in my brain was I just finished this project um, uh, recently called Wuhan Driver. And it's a very, very different type of project. Um, director Tiger G is great. Um, and the uh, cinematographer Stefan uh, Nachman is phenomenal. And it was that moment where I remember where Stefan came in and we were talking about how we wanted these suits to feel. Um, and, you know, I'm playing with the offset. I'm playing with my printer lights. I'm you know, adding a little bit here, adding a little bit there. And when it was finished, when it was said, said and done, just viewing it from start to end um, was amazing. It was amazing. It, it was worth the hours. And I, I think <laughs> there's so many projects like that. So, so, so many that stay with me. But that was one that really made it. Um, because I think I was nervous. I'm always nervous when the DPs get into play. Sometimes I have sessions with the director. Sometimes the producer. It depends. But when the DP is there, that's when you need to be on your game. And then when Stefan said, it looks amazing like my whole body unclenched and I was like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of been my thing too, is just whenever you have a director or a DOP sitting in on a session, it's, it's very much like being under the gun. It feels like somebody's pointing a rifle at your head at that moment. Yeah, uh, it depends. Um, I've, I've been fortunate to cultivate, um, some clients who, uh, 
you know, some uh, consistent clientele base. And some of them, um, I'll, I'll shout out Olivia Sulkowicz again and Richard Yeagley. It's amazing. Like, it can feel under the gun, but at the same time, it feels kind of like you're in Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. <laughs> and, you know, as a colorist, you're a ranger, you know, and the DP or the, you know, director's another ranger. But together, you make a Zord, right? You make, like, the Mega Zord when you're together. And that's when it feels amazing. That's when it feels fantastic. When you're able to both vibe out and create a nice synthesis between ideas and making that um, ideology into like a visual palette. That's when it's amazing. So if, if you don't mind, since we did such a, a long discussion about you know people of color in the industry, and I had mentioned a lot of the people that I know that are stuck working in churches or, you know, just doing small unpaid projects. Do you mind if I give them a shout out so that people know who they are and the fact that they exist? Yeah. So I, I actually want to shout out the colorists who are sure. like doing it big, like, uh, and that people may not know at the moment. Sure. Go ahead. Um, I want to shout out Patrice Bowman. She's phenomenal. Um, she's, she has it together. She's, one of the most organized and easy to work with colorists I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. I'm going to shout out Nigel Tayando over in London, another colorist who's doing amazing things that I've had, like I've been fortunate to have discussions like this with. Um, I want to shout out Twain Richardson over in Jamaica, in Kingston, Jamaica, also doing amazing things. So we're here, we're around, we exist. <laughs> and for the people here in the Deep South, um, I want to give a shout out to a friend of mine named uh, Jordan Williams. He's a brilliant um basically face man he's great at editing he's great at motion graphics he is good at brand promotion as well and voiceover he's up there near tuscaloosa you've got anthony royal reed also an editor and a motion graphics artist he's getting into color correction and color grading as of the last couple of years you've got trey zell who's a brilliant cam op and cinematographer he's also good at doing gaff and then down here in the dothan enterprise area there's javaris moody who is good at just about anything you put in front of him the man has shot some music videos that are absolutely gorgeous he's been dop he does animation and voiceover work as well hit all of them up if you need anything yes yes i love it i and it's one of those things too as like you say all those names i'm seeing all of the hats they wear and it's it's fantastic knowing that we're out here and we're not only doing it big but we're doing multiple things we're we're juggling it all and we will persevere and we'll get it done so if you don't mind, I'd like to shuffle a bit away from the, the film industry and get more into just, you know, your personal life, hobbies, that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, both sure. both of us share an interesting hobby at the moment, and that is Guilty Gear Strive. <laughs> it's, it's so funny. Um, so I can go on for way too long about this. Um, but growing up, I was always into fighting games. Always, always, always. Um, I played a huge amount of uh, Marvel vs. Capcom 2, Marvel vs. Capcom 3, uh, Ultimate Marvel vs. Capcom, you name it, I played it. Um, and then one day I decided to try out Guilty Gear Accent Core. And I'm like, okay, you know, I like the character designs. I, I really like what's going on here. I was like a huge fan of Zappa, right? Uh, Zappa's like this 
dude who's possessed by multiple ghosts. Um, <laughs> and as I grew up, you know, I, you know, that, that interest never left me. And Guilty Gear Strive, I've had, like, a bit of time to play it. I'm really into technical characters. Um, huge, huge Zato 1 fan. Um, still getting the mechanics uh, down a little bit more than Zerd, but I'm in there. I'm in there. <laughs> what floor are you on currently? Have you made it to uh, Celestial yet? No, 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 not, not yet. Not yet. I'm on 11th. Gotcha. I, I have not played but about five hours in that game. I'm stuck on eighth. It's, it's just like every every time I get ranked up to ninth, I suddenly run into somebody who's like, oh, yeah, by the way, uh, dust work completely yeah. different, and I'm, I'm going to just abuse you with it. And I'm like, oh, shit. So. Well, well what's interesting, too, um, because I, I, I think uh, I'm a very competitive person, and I think it kind of goes back to color as well, because um, just a quick sidetrack where – you know, I would see a beautiful film, and I'm like, God, I want to make a film that's that beautiful, that, that makes me feel that good. And then in terms of fighting games, it's always like, okay, well, I want to be, like, the best at this character. Like, I want to be undisputedly good at this character. Like, I want, I want it to be so good that you're never leaving that corner, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I, I think with... Guilty Gear Strive, it's so different in a game in comparison to... I played a lot of Blaze Blue as well. Um, shout out to Valkenhayn. Um, but it's so different in mechanics to other fighting games I've played, where it's way shorter combos, way, way faster, like way, way, way more damage. Um, and just kind of the mechanics are so different um, that it's still taking me time to like lab up and... Uh, <laughs> have you ever played? I wish I could play more. Have you ever played I Dark? Wish I could play more. Have you ever played Darkstalkers? Because to me, Strive feels like Darkstalkers with the damage I output. Played, I played a little bit of it. Um, I I liked uh, what was it? Lele, I think Heisenko, um, yep. and Donovan. I played it, uh, but that was that was over a decade ago. I got so you. I haven't played Darkstalkers in a long time. Gotcha. But. But I, I think what I'm in it for in terms of fighting games in general, uh, and it's I'm a huge fan of uh, Dance Dance Revolution. I'm a huge DDR addict. I can go on for hours about it. It's like I'm really in it for interesting characters. I think that's why Street Fighter never did it for me because I felt like the characters were okay, but kind of mechanic-wise, I was always in it for something more interesting. And Darkstalkers had that. Blaze Boo blaze blue has that like guilty gear has that um but i do feel the characters this time around in guilty gear are less fun in terms of (laughs) just how like weird they are you know (laughs) they they toned faust up and toned everybody else down with the down yeah 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 and i i think that's why i loved 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 um marvel versus capcom um, because the characters themselves, uh, sometimes you'll have, you know, your Wolverines, your, um, your, uh, Storms, but then you'll have, like, the wackadoo ones, like, you know, you had Modok, Shumagorath, and all of these, like, weird-ass characters, and just like anything else, it's just, like, for me, it's about taking something, like, practicing it, practicing it, practicing it, until, like, you get it down, you get that character down, 
and then you take it into a match, just like you take a color into a session, and then you're able to do exactly what you want to do. And then it's like, damn, I actually know what I'm doing. <laughs> it's, um, I, I think the big one is, uh, for Guilty Gear Strive, there's, uh, as you know, there's a character, uh, Zato One. His whole thing is he's like a puppet character. Um, and he's really unique in that way. But, you know, it's at first it feels weird. At first, you know, doing um, how you have to play him is a lot different than many other characters. But once you get it down and you're able to kind of get into your opponent's head a little bit where you're like, okay, well, they're going to, you know, you know when to burst bait. You know kind of when they're going to try to uh, jab out. You know how the, the opponent's going to react and you adjust accordingly and you just demolish them it's a beautiful feeling oh my god it's it's wonderful it's wonderful <laughs> i'm not a I, i'll go on and rant about how much i hate may but <laughs> that might that might be a little too uh, well, uh spoiler too alert explicit <laughs> Spo- spoiler alert uh i i'm i'm a may main with a soul pocket so oh yeah you're awful I, I don't know. I've I've really dove into Zato and Giovanna. Um, I, I I do wish though. I don't know. I, I feel like Strive in terms of options is a little bit more limiting in terms of Guilty Gear. But it's it's free flowing in some ways and really limiting in others. And I'm like getting used to that a bit. So to kind of like. Because I never really get to talk about fighting games much with people. Um, it's it's in this area such a weird thing. Back, <laughs> you gotta come to New York, my man. <laughs> yeah, back back in the two thousands though, Alabama did have a huge uh, King of Fighters and Guilty Gear scene, and it was mostly run out of the the Namco Aladdin's Castle arcades that were all over the state. Mm-hmm. We had X two machines, and we had uh, I think it was KOF two thousand two. And especially out of Mobile here in Alabama, there was a huge scene for both of them to the point that some of the people from here made it to Evo for Guilty Gear. And it was it was wild. It was never main stage uh, back in the next yeah. two days, but they always did the side tournaments. And it was crazy to hear about, you know, people from Alabama, like in the middle of nowhere, Alabama, who would drive down like two, three hours to Mobile to play on weekends, actually going to Evo. Yeah, I, I, I think that brings up another point. It's another cross section that, you know, no one talks about between fighting games and, you know, the post-industry, uh, where at the same time, uh, there's, it's all about the passion and the love for it. It's about, like, putting in the work, and King of Fighters is disgustingly difficult. Um, <laughs> I was never a big fan, never, never, never a big fan of uh, the gameplay. It was, always felt weird to me. Always felt a little weird, but... Uh, the huge intersection between both, um, which isn't really talked about, is kind of the class divides as well. Where here in New York, growing up, um, a lot of black, it was primarily like the black community, the black community fell in love with Marvel vs. Capcom. It was like a huge thing, MVC2 and MVC3, where you'll go to the arcade and there's money matches, there's yelling, it's, it's, it was like a whole vibe. Um, 
And then, you know, Street Fighter was a thing, but, like, Marvel vs. Capcom just kind of took the community by storm. And it was, like, from there that we were able to kind of, like, better our execution. Like, uh, especially in Marvel vs. Capcom 2, where you had, you had to know how to plink. You know, you had to know your frames. You had to know all of these things just to kind of exist in the arcade and not get yelled at and not get your money taken. <laughs> oh, man, I love it. I love it, love it, love it. Um, and I, I think in the same way with, you know, being a POC for color, it's like you have to kind of not only be good enough, but you have to be better than um, your than the people around you. That's kind of our thing where, you know, growing up they say, you know, you can't ever be good enough. You have to be better. Which is a shame <sighs> that you have to be better. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's great though. Like um I think <laughs> to bring it right back to fighting games, mm-hmm. it's kind of that's that's the best part though. It's like uh especially about Strive, where I don't ever feel bad for too long about losing, right? You know, if you lose lose a game, like, if, if you just kind of got perfected by, like, an I know who had you in the corner mixing you, like, up and down, left and right, I don't feel bad. It's like, okay, cool. That opponent is great. Their execution is great. How do I do what they're doing? Or how do I, like, how do I, how, how can I counter them and be better? Right. That's um, always something as like a Zato player where, you know, shit is so complicated and I'm versing a mirror match against another one who's like mixing me up and kind of um, in ways I I've never even thought were possible. It's like, OK, how is he holding that button while like negative edging with another button? And part of it's like beautiful and another part's like, holy shit, I want to be better than him. On the topic of Guilty Gear, so you started with Accent Core. I'm assuming you played all the releases of uh, Exert as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, especially when it got to Exert uh, Rev 2, I kind of uh, chuckered out a little bit. Gotcha. Um, just because of like where my life was at that time, I didn't have enough time to put in like the hours I wish I could put into. But in Exert, um, in Zerd, I was way more of a Jacko player. Um, played Jacko, played a lot of so um, you, you you went into Guilty Gear and decided to play League. What's up? I said so you're you're a Jacko player. You went into Guilty Gear and decided to play League of Legends. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. All right. <laughs> oh, but but I think that's that's Make, what making, I mean by making everybody feel bad for not buying uh, Overture. <laughs> but that that's what I mean by like I miss that about uh, like I miss how wackadoo the characters were. I miss how crazy it it was. You know, it it just feels a lot more tame this time around. Hopefully that'll change because I think Happy Chaos is the first DLC character, and just his visual and the way that he's played up in the story mode seems absolutely insane. So I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that he brings a bit of that weirdness back to the actual gameplay side. I hope, but at the same time, it's just, 
I feel bad because there's so many characters I kind of wanted I want, in I want, Strive. I want Bridget back. Yeah, well, if you get Bridget, I, I want Venom back. Well, like, Venom too, yeah. Ven- Venom, Bridget, uh, Testament needs to come back because EXE Beast was amazing. Uh, <laughs> it's like, I can do without, like, I want some of the, like, I wasn't the biggest fan. I, I wasn't really a Zappa player, but mm-hmm. kind of just like his mechanics were phenomenal. And I, that's kind of what I want. I want the weird shit. Like, Testament is too too normal. Too normal. Even, even if he's not, even, you know, he's a sadomasochist weirdo, but still too normal by Guilty Gear standards. Bring on the ABBA. Bring on the weird ones. <laughs> God, I haven't even thought about ABBA. Yeah, and neither has uh, Arxis. Don't worry about it. Bring bring back <laughs> Leopoldin. The the weird dog thing from Izuka. Yeah. Oh yeah, no. And and this this is kind of I, I hope we get there. I hope um, kind of like what Street Fighter Five did by like you know launch it had like a a bare minimum kind of base roster, but now it's like a crazy amount of characters. Yeah. So I'm hoping we get there. Um but I, I think it's more so on kind of the community coming together and kind of like rallying for these games. There's Especially... been... Sorry, sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to... No, 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 no. Go for it. There's been... Um, on, on the topic of, of Strive, there has been some rumor, and I don't know how solid this rumor is, but there's been rumor on Reddit where people have said that the development team have spoken privately with interviewers about how strive technically released in what they consider an unfinished state just because they didn't think it was going to do well and were worried that the budget was getting out of hand on it and the fact that it has become like one of the fastest selling fighting games and it's kind of put guilty gear on the map is insane that's interesting yeah well uh, that's the thing with fighting games um (laughs) they're, they're one of the only places where you can release something completely unfinished and as long as it has a training mode a decent base roster people will pick it up people will play it like um i played a lot of uh, skull girls back in the day mm. um and you know skull girls at launch was like terrible um I, I wasn't really a big fan of the art style but kind of the mechanics in it were really good and it took years upon years to get like to where it's I would look at it now and I'd be like, okay, that's a finished game, but it's also like a dead game. <laughs> so if you sorry, go ahead. Uh-huh. I, I don't yeah, mean so... I don't mean to interrupt. I'm, I'm listening through headphones, and so there's a delay between when you're talking and when I hear it. So ah, gotcha. Yeah. So I think my thing is, um, I know Arxis has a habit of doing this, of like killing games off to like the next one. And I know with they really wanted strive to be another version of guilty gear and not take away from guilty gear zerd but you know inevitably it did and now no one's playing guilty gear zerd so i i, I just I, I don't like the way arxis kind of mm. the company handles <laughs> their yeah. games uh no, i was also a really big fan of uh cross uh plays blue cross tag and you know that's that's dead. That's dead in the water. What's weird is it's dead, but there's still DLC coming out for it. Yeah, but, but like two people are gonna buy. I know, but it's it's just <laughs> whatever. Because like fighting games are one of the only uh, genres too where a thing can still be in the process of being developed, and yet it's it's just not played. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, 
I, I think that's the beauty of it, though. Like, um, it's the only place, it's the only genre where if you lose, it's on you, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if the match code is good enough, and if you're playing locally, if you lose, you can't blame you no know, your other. You can't blame your teammates. You can't blame like a kill streak or whatever first-person shooter thing happens. But it's like on you, and you know that's kind of why I like the DDR so much as well. Um, DDR is like really close to my heart in that same way where, you know, kind of like fighting games where you see someone do like a crazy combo or, you know, someone just like, you know, charge partitioned into like a negative edge into what have you. And it's like, holy shit, how did they do that? I don't know if I can do that. And with DDR, Dance Dance Revolution, um, it's it's so weird because I'm like going to be known as the black colorist who likes DDR. Um, <laughs> but it's one of those things where physically you don't know if you can. And then you practice, you practice, you practice, you sweat, you sweat, you sweat, you sweat, you sweat. And lo and behold, you can finally finish that song. And then lo and behold, you put 10 more hours in. And, you know, your endurance has increased. You're not breathing as heavily anymore. You're not sweating as much. And you can now get a B on the song. You can now get an A on the song. You can now get a S on the song. You can now get what have you. Like, I think I like things where the onus is on you, where you have to improve. You have to make this. You can't blame anyone else in those games. Yeah, like, um, with Cross Tag Battle, God, I, I loved it. I was, like, a huge fan of it. Um, but it just got to the point where it was just dead, and there was, like, no one to play. You know, I would get home from work, and I'm like, okay, cool. I have some time. I have, like, an hour. I'm going to play some BBCT. And then, you know, I you go into a lobby, and you're looking around with your little mini avatar for people, and there's nobody. <laughs> Well, on the on the point about uh, Rev Two, like by the time Rev Two came out, Guilty Gear XR was kind of already dead too. I remember I'd go in the public lobbies and the ranked lobbies, and there was no one. It would just be people playing in rooms. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a lot of these games like live and die by their Discord now. Yeah, but it's it's like cool in that way. Um, like I still play when I whenever I have a chance. Uh, if I have free time. I might pop in some Marvel vs. Capcom 3. And what's interesting is, you know, communities develop in that way, where, you know, you fight someone who's been fighting for a decade, right? And, you know, this person, when you when you were, like, fighting them, you were a kid and they were a kid, and now they have a kid. And, you know, they're still mixing you up and they're still, like, kicking your ass. It's <laughs> It's really exciting kind of seeing... Even if these games die, who who are left over? Who are the remnants? And and kind of like how those people develop. It's really cool. Yeah, I've got a friend of mine who's in Virginia named Jason that I've been trying to get into fighting games just because he's the type of personality that is always trying to like improve and get better at things. And I think if it can click, he would fall in love with it. But for some reason, he's just never either got the time or the energy to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's the big thing with fighting games. They're a commitment. They're totally a commitment. And I feel you have to be like seasoned a little bit. Like, 
before you're able to commit to that. Like you have to see something or play something and be like, okay, I'm I want to put hours into this, and that's like hours into like being in a a, a training mode with like bursting no one, just mm-hmm. kind of going across button presses and timings and things. It's like a very different type of commitment, you know. Yeah, for him, what's what's interesting is Tekken has seemed to click. Same with like Dragon Ball Fighters; those two are the ones that have resonated with him the most. Where like Street Fighter was kind of eh. Guilty Gear he liked, but it also was just a little too chaotic, which is weird because he loved <laughs> he loved fighters. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's this this off putting thing about Guilty Gear and you know your Blaze Blues is um, it can be a lot at once. You know, there, there's a lot going on yeah. in terms of mechanics. So I, I get that. Like, it might also be the ne- fact that I tried to start him off learning Souls uh, Dust Loop. So that doesn't have a lot to do with his <laughs> lack of enjoyment. <laughs> well, yeah, that's kind of similar. It's like with Tekken. Um, I was never really big into Tekken. I played a little bit back in the day, but I've never been one for 3D uh, fighting games. But it's kind of like, you know, they have the EWGF. Where it's like if you use um, Kazuya or any of the Machinima people, it's about like getting the timing for like their evil wind god electric fist, whatever mm-hmm. the fuck it's called. And it's, you know, that's hell. And you have people there who are like pros, the pros of the pros who can only do it like 40% of the time. So I, I think like stuff like that can be a little off putting. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, the, the thing with Tekken is Tekken 7 still is, like, super vibrant with its community, so there's players yeah, from yeah, all yeah, skill levels. And, and the thing, too, is, like, he, he just likes getting in his Leroy and doing, like, the one-inch punches over and over again. And then the Mishima characters have wave dashing that you can do, and so it's always fun to just, like, wave dash like an idiot across the screen. <laughs> yeah, it's... Um, I've never been, like I said, one for Tekken, but God... Damn it! Is Leroy not the coolest character? <laughs> it's like they really, they they really looked to our like to me and my fellow <laughs> black people, and they said, "We're doing it real for you guys. We're doing it big." It's it's so good. Like between Leroy and um, Raven and Master Raven, it's just like beautiful representation. And like for me, it's not about. Um, Maybe the game, the gameplay, and the mechanics play a portion, but I'm really attracted to really cool, really unique-looking characters. Like that's what gets me with a fighting game first and foremost. If you have a cool-looking character, I'm interested. I'm down. And I'm... I think. Sorry, go ahead. I, I, this is another like delay making me think you were paused. My bad. Yeah, no, all good. And I, I think with Tekken, like Tekken's just chalk full of them. Like their R and D team for characters is amazing they have a character for everybody that represents every culture and every it's awesome i on the topic of interesting character design and how like black representation in fighting games is kind of getting bigger now uh, you know back in the day it was basically just balrog and dj yeah. um <laughs> but both of them are you know a bit questionable especially like dj doing the billy blanks thing in an exaggerated way um but it's, I think it's interesting, too, with in Guilty Gear Strive, the, the character of Nagoyuki, because he kind of comes out around the same time that, like, Yasuke as a historical figure is blowing up, too. And there's some parallels in design and mythology bet- between the two that's fascinating. 
Well, I, I think what's fascinating on top of Nagoriyuki is the fact that, you know, I can, I, I can go into a Guilty Gear Strive lobby, um, make my character pick Nagoriyuki's hair, mm-hmm. and I'm like, oh my god, my character actually looks like me. Like I can make my little sprite look like me, and I and just just other things like that, little small things where it's like, okay, well I don't have to play as a you know white guy with blonde hair, or you know, and, and I'm not trying to say that all like fighting games have been terrible across the board. I think um, they're getting better. Uh, they've they've represented different cultures and they're extending their reach. I think Nagoriyuki is a great example where, you know, we have a character who's like a black vampire who's a swordsman and that's like dope. He's also <laughs> and, like all about honor and like being yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the guy who does it the right way too. Like he's a villain that has like probably the most heroic code of honor. Yeah, and I, I think that's what I enjoy. I enjoy kind of the diversity of kind of character design mm-hmm. um I, I i think above all it's not about um black or white but it's just about like how many different types of characters can we like plop in a fighting game which is like really cool um there's a that's why th- sorry for interrupting mm-hmm. okay, go ahead no 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 go for it there's a on the topic of guilty gear 2 there's an interesting interview with the uh, character designer and, and overall like producer, developer, director da- uh, Daisuke Shiwatari, where I think it was an art book where he was talking about how he wished in the original he hadn't given the characters races because he has people who come up to him all the time saying you know, if some of the alternate colors, which he apparently originally picked the darker skin tones just to go with the color scheme, not thinking too much about it. Japan has a bit of a different history with race, both good and sometimes absolutely terrible. Um but he said people come up to him and ask him about, you know, hey, you know, why, why do they do this? And he's mentioned that because a lot of people identify with them better with darker skin, he wishes he hadn't give them canonical races the way that he had. He wished that it could be a thing where they're whoever you want them to be kind of characters. Yeah, I, I think that that brings up a good point of kind of where we're seeing representation going, where for me, um, in terms of kind of working in the industry, uh, and this is, I'm making a huge intersection here. Just follow me. Yeah, um, where it's like, we're, we're getting to a place where it doesn't matter. And what I mean by it doesn't matter is I mean that I can have a character who can be a swordsman who, you know, just from the future, who uh, just killed five men and is wanted for murder um, by the thought police or what have you. It doesn't matter. And it could just be like, oh, okay, well, he also has a boyfriend. And, like, that is perfect, and it's fine. And, you know, that character is, um, like, Hindu. Like, he, he is just, like, a South, like, Southeastern, like, South, Southeastern dude. And, like, it doesn't matter. And I think that's the beauty of it, where we can now get to these places where we have such diverse diverse looking and sounding and like just cultures going on and we can like represent them and bring light to them just like with um all of these comic book movies i was like Mm -hmm. a huge 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 comic book nerd as a kid 
um, I would always go to Alibaba's, which is like a halal place near me, and you know, pick up some um, lamb over rice or gy- or, e- or gyro, or as they're properly pronounced, gyro, um, and like go to a comic book store and just like enjoy my time. And you know, I was really into Marvel comics, but not you know Wolverine in them. I was like really into Jubilee, and um, I was like a huge, huge, huge huge nightcrawler fan like and it's, it was just interesting kind of the beauty that marvel and all of these comics represented where you know, they had everyone for someone you know and i think that was the beauty of it and we're, we're getting there slowly but surely we're getting there have you heard of a, or, or paid much attention to a, a series on Netflix called Shadow and Bone? Because I feel like it's probably one of the most in-your-face diverse casts I've seen that doesn't necessarily go, hey, look, we're good people because we're diverse. It's just like, this is this is the world that this place takes place in. Yeah, no, I, I haven't, but that, that's, like, great. Like, once again, it's just, like, you know, it's just, I think it's good for casting, too, because who cares anymore? Like, mm-hmm. why do you... Why, why, why do you need to specifically cast like a person of a, a race? You can just open it up to, unless the story is about like that race, yeah. like, like if if it's a if it's about a white supremacist, I, I kind of would picture the, the the person to be white. But if not, that that'll also be an interesting story. Just, <laughs> it just I depends. mean, there there have been some. This is kind of a tangent, but there 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 have been some infamous figures down here in the South that were pro segregationists that were black themselves. So it's yeah. Yep, 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 yep. And uh, that's that's the thing where you know it it opens up casting opens up stories, and as much as it doesn't matter, as it matters in that way it matters in a different way where i much rather a cast like where someone kind of just closes their eyes and just like picks different people of like different races according uh, assuming they're all of equal talent and then like have the same story because depending on the race like you know sometimes sometimes the story will be different like if it's if it's like culturally relevant if it's not, then it's even better because it doesn't matter. And <laughs> it's just nice knowing that, you know, it's a real world. Maybe I'm lucky. Uh, maybe I'm privileged because in New York, but just how it is here in America, it's like everybody is everywhere. Like I'm a black guy dating a half white, half Filipino woman. And, you know, that's cool. And like, you know, there, there's so many people out there who are mixed or black or white or like asian or like indian and you know that's this is just the world we live in so it was always weird kind of like seeing these movies and it's just like all the same type of people mm-hmm. it's just like oh that's weird we're playing these fighting games and it's like you know different clones that that was kind of my thing of dragon ball z where yeah. it's just all different Gokus, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I can't do this. <laughs> no, I mean the meme. The meme still is, "Oops, all Gokus," because I, I think I still think there are more versions of Goku in that game than there are individual characters. Yeah, and that was like my big problem. Where it's like, okay, well, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I haven't touched Dragon Ball Z in 
years. It wasn't ever my mm-hmm. game. Um, but, you know, there I, I don't remember Chi-Chi being in the game. I don't remember Bulma being in the game. Uh, Bulma is rumored to be added. They recently added Videl. They recently finally added uh, Kefla from Super, who's the Broly type. Uh, I, f- I forget what the name of that type of Super Saiyan is, but she's the burly type of Super Saiyan where she can like get big and muscular. Yeah, the berserker people. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, I, I think that's like the weirdest thing. Like Dragon Ball Z Fighters has been out since when? Like 2018, 2017? 2017, yeah. Yeah, and there's like so much to pull from. So many interesting characters to pull from Dragon Ball Z well, in Dragon Ball lore in general, and we just get like fifty Goku's. Where, where where's Tao Pai? You know, Pai? I, where 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 the hell is Tao Pai Pai? I want I want to yeah. I want to fly on a <laughs> fly on a log and slap people. Well, is I, I remember being a huge. Um, I played a lot of Tenkai, like Dragon Ball Z, Tenkaichi, um, mm. Budokai Tenkaichi, whatever have you, yeah, long yeah. ass title. Um, with my brother growing up, and I'll never forget loving 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 uh janemba who was like this really cool kind of like dimensional monster thing and then he could transform into this demon with a sword and i thought that was like the coolest most badass thing ever and maybe they added maybe they added him down the line but like he is now um, yeah oh that's awesome but like that's what i mean like there's so there's so many characters to to go for and like you can go you can have years years worth of characters before adding another goku well that's kind of this is sort of a separate topic but i feel like anime games in general are getting kind of the short stick because you have to choose between good gameplay but like little fan service or all fan service bad gameplay because on the opposite end of that you've got the the xenoverse games which are not great to play but they have everybody you want yeah, I've never been one. I've never tried the universe games, but yeah, I I think yeah, I think anime games are weird like that. Um, it's not anime, but I think one that does a really good job was that there's like you know, growing up, I watched so much Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Oh my god, oh my god, um, and they released a Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. I think it's called Battle for the Grid. Um, yep. fighting game a year, maybe a year two years ago and think, what was so yeah. interesting about it was that it was all fan service it's like all the characters that like mighty morphin like fans like nostalgically wanted and it was all about the gameplay but the downside was the budget that game was cheap as all hell it played well, but like graphics wise, it wasn't there. So there's always something that's going to be given up. Mm-hmm. Always, always something. Well, it's it's like, also like you see the the anime fighting games moving away from like the traditional side by side and more into the whole like open Naruto like three on three running around in three D thing, which I've never really been that big a fan of. Yeah, I think that they're, they're cool to play um, casually. Like, they're really cool to, like, just play with your friends, like, um, and, you know, play with your family growing up. But I, they, they weren't really my type of, they're not the type of game I'm into, you know? And I, I think you're the same as me, where you want something that, you know, has a little bit of that tradition to it, 
but also has a little bit more of a, a mechanical feel where it's kind of about the mechanics instead of about the visuals. I, I feel like with those Naruto's and um, what have you, uh, they're more about like the visuals. Mm-hmm. I want a game where I have to actually learn the game and the characters are all differentiated from each other. Like the the whole everybody's got the same hat kind of thing that those titles tend to have puts me off. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I agree. Um, that was like my big thing with uh, Skullgirls where it's like, God, I was not a fan of how it looks. Mm-hmm. But every character was so unique and so, so, so different where you had. And they were all kind of... You know, you can always tell when, you know, a game, especially a fighting game, is made with love and with mm-hmm. people who care about it versus a game that was just, like, churned out. Um, where with Skullgirls, it was just about, okay, these are other very, these are archetypes of um, traditional fighting game roles, but they are new spins on it, right? Where you can have a grappler who isn't slow and can mix you up, or you can have a zoner who can like flood the screen with so much shit and then like also not be defenseless so it was i love stuff like that it's little things like that that you know it just makes me happy <laughs> i want to also uh, just briefly touch on scroll girls and the fact that it, it was it was one of the first xbla games that was like a downloadable fighting game you know it came out on xbox 360 originally at a time where to get fighting games you still had to buy them on the disc only yeah, well, yeah, I, I never even thought about that. Yep. Wow. It was the the Street Fighter 2 HD remix and Scroll Girls, and those were like the only two. Wow, yeah. Um it's it was awesome. And then I remember like when I bought it, I, I remember being so happy, like that I could just like buy a, buy this off of wow, Xbox Live. That that's taking me back. <laughs> um, that's taking me real back. <laughs> Like, just buy this and not have to, like, worry about picking it up from a store or, like, going to GameStop and the whole nine yards. It's awesome. I I think above that, I'm trying to think of all the fighting games I've <laughs> been into. It was Skullgirls, Blaze Blue, Guilty Gear, Marvel vs. Capcom. Yeah, I was never one for um, Mortal Kombat. That... It, it's something technically that just wasn't there for me. It's it, it so Mortal Kombat in the recent ones, starting with the the reboot, have been better about it. But back in the day, literally every character had the exact same move list, just different supers, and it was so confusing. Especially since you could, you know, a combo in Mortal Kombat one, two, and three was just mash punch because they would just punch with their upper body like back and forth, and so a combo was just mash out punch until you knock the enemy back from the knockback enough that you can't hit them anymore then do a super that's a combo there was yeah, there was just no, like no 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 that is not for me there was I, a I, level I, of like weird brain dead but also like just playing aggressively to it that i couldn't get into yeah same i i think it was just something about the modeling that just hmm. kind of the models that just kind of drove me the wrong way um i think i have a huge appreciation for kind of the art form behind a lot of this. Like I, I love, 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 love fine arts and studio arts. I'm really into video art. Um, it's kind of one of my main loves. Um, so kind of 
dissecting the art behind the work, um, especially, I think, Guilty Gear was a big one, where there's so much artistry, so much uh, mastery put in by Daisuke that kind of shows off, and it's kind of always pushing the realms of innovation of what can be done with our current software and hardware. Uh, Like, Zerd looked phenomenal first time, Guilty Gear's Drive looks even better, but just in a different way. So I think that's where I kind of put my focus. I I think Mortal Kombat looked good, but all their models, all the character models felt a little samey. It felt like they had the same base for guy and girl and Mm -hmm. just worked off that. On the topic of Guilty Gear kind of innovating, a lot of people don't know that the term anime fighter... So, okay, for people who aren't into fighting games, anime fighter doesn't necessarily mean it's based off an anime. It means that it it follows... Yeah, it it currently means it's got air dashing and cancels, mostly. Um, Or metered cancels, because most fighting games have, like, unmetered cancels. Anyway, the interesting thing about the origin of it is the reason anime fighters as a term came to be is because of the original Guilty Gear. Rather than doing art in Guilty Gear and Guilty Gear X on, say, a digital workstation, these were all done on animation cells and then scanned in with flatbed scanners. Yeah, and the, the, there's something so, so beautiful about... And I, I think it goes a little bit back to <laughs> the process mm-hmm. and kind of loving the process and it's and it showing itself off. Um, and that's kind of why I liked kind of work. There's certain things I can appreciate about fighting games. Um, and it's about kind of showing themselves off where they can show the amount of time they can show the amount of effort. Um, I'm going to go back to the (laughs) mighty Morphin power ranger one, just because it's the best example where you can see just like how much effort and time went into the game mechanics just like kind of diving deep into game mechanics more so i think it's one of the most complex ones out there um than than anything it's it's a phenomenal showcase i'll need to check it out i've yet to play battle for the grid yeah 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 it's 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 great it's cheap but it's great (laughs) because like i i never really i mean when i was a kid i was big into power rangers and then as a teenager i discovered common rider and kind of dropped the whole super sentai power rangers thing it was just all common rider since then so i'm i I want a good common rider fighting game we we need one because there's there's so much crazy bullshit there's a there's a villain in Common Rider V3, which is like the third series back in the 70s, called Star, Starfish Hitler, which is literally where a guy Starfish took Hitler. a he took a starfish and put Hitler's brain in it and gave him a machine gun. And it's freaking amazing. <laughs> starfish Hitler gets killed by being punched off a bridge where he blows up, splats on the ground, and then blows up 50 more times. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> well, I, I, I think that's the beauty of, uh, there's just so much. Uh, I was, I, I was on Netflix the other day, and I noticed that like Mighty Morphin Power Rangers is actually on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Um, so I decided to check out an episode, and oh man, I was watching it with a smile on my face. Just, <laughs> <laughs> just kind of how much they were able to do with so little in terms of the budget. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a kid, I thought. Uh, the villains were so cool. Like how 
right now you're talking about Starfish Hitler. Yeah. In Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, there's one called <laughs> The Most Menacing Minotaur. Oh, and of course, it's like yeah. directed toward kids, but I, I thought that was the most hilarious thing ever. And, you know, Rita Repulsa is talking about the most menacing Minotaur as, you know, a, a monster that took over planets and, you know, what have you. And whenever, you know, the Rangers see the Minotaur, they always call him the most menacing Minotaur. Like they have to say his full title. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, was, what was the name of the weird pig tennis ball looking thing in Power Rangers? Do you know? Because it's, it's a it's character I've ball. never, I've never been able to find any, any info on this character, but it's, it's one I distinctly remember from Power Rangers. It's, He's like a pig, but he's shaped like a tennis ball, and he's got a like Roman gladiator helmet with the red like feathers on top, and it's. He's a pig, but dressed like a Rome... tennis ball. Yeah, it's it's it's. <laughs> I I hope I'm not just like having a weird like childhood memories amalgamating different things together, but I swear there was a, a monster like that. A pig dressed as a tennis. Well, I don't know about that one, but um. Over the course of my watching, I was only able to get through a couple episodes. My favorite one um, of all of the villains I saw so far on the rewatch is this one called Eye Guy, who is just a dude in a suit with eyes. And it, it was like the most lazy, but also creatively <laughs> lazy thing I've ever seen. It's awesome. I think that's why Power Rangers is so cool. Like, the villains are so shameless <laughs> um but also kind of like watching it to see how far we've come in terms of uh, broadcasting in terms of vfx work in terms of uh fx work is also incredible yeah oh yeah, so if you've got any interest in checking out and this is also for people listening in uh, checking out like weird, low budget Japanese monster TV shows like Power Rangers, Kamen Rider. There, there were thousands of these things made in the 70s and 80s. There's a, a thing on Pluto TV that's free to watch called Tokushatsu or the Tokusatsu Network. And they just 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's all they show. Oh, that's so funny. Um, there's a I can't remember his name. Um Kenny Lauderdale, I think it is. There's a dude on YouTube who his whole channel is dedicated to finding old Japanese lost media. Mm. Um, and he has like a very like specific interest in, uh, what's, what's it called? Uh, there's a period in Japan where it was all about like rebel, rebel and deviant. Like, oh, the, the Showa era. Yeah. What, what is the name of it? Um, shit i'm sorry i can't remember the name of it but his his whole thing is about finding lost media so i just want to shout him out his videos are incredible not only because of you know he's very well researched in (laughs) the things he's finding Mm -hmm. but because of kind of his depth and like how far he goes to find lost media um there's one uh there's one he found that was like trying to remember the only thing that existed was like um a single cell uh like animation cell and you know he put hundreds and hundreds and hundreds hours in and finding kind of like the name of the anime the uh, distributor of the anime and was able to like find 
the only surviving copy of like the pilot episode all from like one animation well like animation in general i think is is a shame how it's treated worldwide because it's such a throwaway medium for a lot of places to the point that they even throw away like actual animation cells when they're finished with shows which blows my mind well it's interesting because i i come from a more uh, studio art background and what we're getting in a lot of studio arts and fine art is we're getting kind of the rise of video art and utilizing animation for conceptual work. So what ends up having is you have a lot of video artists kind of going in that direction. Um, I, I think the biggest, I would say, without a doubt, uh, that's kind of going in that direction is u- utilizing green screen and how much you can get done with green screen and kind of culminating animation. And then what ends up happening is the studios buy that animation and buy, uh, buy the animation so that they exist longer for a longer period of time. Okay. So I, I think there's ways we're getting uh, where there, there's ways in which the art form of animation is still being uh, preserved outside of, of course, uh, animated film, like uh, mm-hmm. mainstream animated films. I just, I, I, I worry about a lot of lost media and how how many projects are just lost to time that could have been impactful. Uh, Hito Sterl, um, who's a phenomenal video artist, uh, talks about this. Uh, she has a great, uh, really great essay uh, called In Defense of the Poor Image, mm-hmm. where, you know, she talks about how beautiful the idea of kind of lost and kind of forgotten media can be and a forgotten photograph and a forgotten so where it's as much as it's sad is as much as it's beautiful and kind of intimate you're seeing something that has been almost lost to time so i i would definitely recommend reading that essay okay yeah she's she's great she's really really great um yeah, but even in terms of animation, to kind of route it back, we're seeing, since the process of animation has gotten a lot more accessible, we're seeing a lot more uh, people are wearing that animation hat a little bit. Um, I, I I very much <laughs> would not, but I have so, so, so many animator friends who, you know, because the equipment has gotten so cheap, because, you know, render farms are a lot more accessible than what they used to be. Uh, it's we're, we're, we're getting that love of animation hasn't left. It hasn't left at all. Yeah. On, on that topic, I actually found that interesting because I've been learning animation over the last couple of years and even doing TV spots now that are animated in 3D. And it's, it's, it's a completely different world. One of the things that I love, as much as I like the creative process of being like a collaborative person, um, one of the things that I do enjoy about animation is I'm, it's, it's basically my own little world. Like I can make yeah. and change anything how I see fit. And it's entirely me. Like when it's done, if it's good, it's me. If it's bad, it's also still it's me. You, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 once again, I like that you and fellow animators enjoy that. Um, I, I, I personally, I couldn't, <laughs> not, <laughs> not right now maybe give me give me some time give me a million bucks and 
million bucks and a lot of free time. And I think I'll enjoy animation <laughs> and learning animation. Um, but yeah, no, I think the reason why you like animation is also kind of why I like um, color grading in some ways, where I do enjoy... I don't have one color assistant who comes in sometimes just for simple uh, conforms, but besides that, uh, if the client's not in, it's just me. I love the collaborative. Uh, I love the collaborative uh, aspect of filmmaking, but I do enjoy the aspect of the privateness, the intimacy that I can have with an image. That you know, being on set uh, doesn't necessarily give you all the time. Unfortunately, on that note, we are about two hours and 16 minutes in, so uh, we are... Whoa, mama, that's we're, we're much gonna, longer than I thought. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have to... Uh, well, no, we're, we're an hour and 16 minutes in. Excuse me, I, I miscounted. I forgot that the, the timer on my podcast, uh, the, I'm, I'm using Logic Pro, so the, the timer at the top starts at hour one. My bad. But we're still an hour and 16 minutes in. Um, I'm going to have to wrap this up if you don't mind. Yeah, no. Because this is this. I, I, generally, I try to keep episodes to thirty minutes, so we're probably going to have two episodes out of this if you don't have a problem Whoa. with that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the last thing I'll say is uh, thank you so much for having me, Billy. It's been absolute pleasure to talk not only you know industry, uh, like not only about the industry, but also about like what I feel a lot of us don't talk about. It's like what we do outside of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, working in our suites. <laughs> well, I, that's, I, I, one of the reasons I started the podcast originally was to highlight unknown filmmakers from the South, because, you know, we're very much overlooked down here, even in Atlanta, yeah. the majority of the people who are getting, you know, gigs and getting notice are people who are from LA that flew out here or, you know, moved here. Um, And then from there, it kind of morphed into like, kind of a lifestyle podcast where we're just talking about, you know, well, who are you and what do you do? And it's expanded beyond, you know, just the South to people all over. And while I still like to, you know, as we were mentioning, you know, uh, different people of color and, and, you know, the film industry, it's, it's very hard unless you're on screen talent to find work. Um, I, I like to focus on kind of the, the overlooked and unknown voices, but it's, it's, it has morphed more into a let's let's just hang out and talk about whatever kind of thing, and I, I really enjoy that because it's I don't know there's yeah, something it's, there's something it's free. a moment it, it's a moment of it's a moment of relaxation uh, yeah. it's a moment of respite from <laughs> our lives for a little bit yeah like you, we don't we don't have to always be on topic you know for the job and I mean hell if anybody wants to come on the podcast and just talk about like say they have a huge sneaker collection. All they want to do is talk about sneakers. I know nothing about sneakers, but I will listen and it'll be a fun combo. So <laughs> that is, uh, I, I, I mean, that's a whole other thing like sneakers. Yeah. That's a whole other thing. I know <laughs> someone who's really into, um, fixing shoes. I gotcha. And yes. It's like a big thing in New York. <laughs> I, I mean, it's a big thing everywhere. Trust me. Oh, oh, wow. Um, yeah, so once again, I just want to say thank you so much for your time, Billy. I thank hope you have a beautiful climb to Celestial. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I'll see you in the training. I'll see you in the dojo. <laughs> yeah, we need we need to we need to figure out a, a time to play.